0: as we come to god's word let's just take a moment to pray father we pray that you would still our hearts as we come to your word now and that just as we look right through the whole sweep of your word this evening you would remind us of the truth of what we've been singing of just what a god of grace you are and how irresistible and free that grace is to each one of us in jesus name amen Have you ever thought how much story forms part of who we are? In childhood, hearing favourite stories is very important. Uh, Sometimes young children like to hear the same story time and time again. In old age where memory permits, story is very important as people remember the story of their families and their relatives and what happened to them long ago. The relational nature of story seems to draw us in whether we're young or whether we're old i think it's somewhat surprising then in a culture like ours that all too often we overlook the fact that the bible is also a story a true story in certain places perhaps scripture is read looking for texts for a thought for the day and whilst perhaps sometimes that has a place if we only read scripture in that way we become detached from the overall story so it's helpful to spend some time this evening thinking about the overall story of the Bible, how all the different bits fit together, not only to help us understand what we're reading when, when we read it, but also to help us in making our response to what God is saying to us. The scriptural story is a unique one, and yet thinking of it as a story isn't new. This evening we're going to adaptive framework proposed by a writer called Marva Dawn who who draws on some work by N.T. Wright. I say that simply because there's so many variations of of this idea uh, about perhaps you'll have read parts of this uh, before. So we're going to follow Marva Dawn's structure this evening. So I want you to imagine the scene with me if you will. Mr. Mills, Mr. Stanley Mills finds an unknown Unpublished Shakespearean play. After he reads it and, and verifies its authenticity, he decides to produce it. But he runs into a problem because he realizes that he only possesses Acts 1 to 5 and Act 7. Act 6 is mysteriously missing. So what's he to do? He could just make it up and hope that it, it, it fitted it in. He could read and study what he has acts 1 to 5 and acts 7 consult with with actors who regularly are involved in Shakespearean works and know uh, Shakespeare's work and life uh, and ask them to help and of course that's what he would do and once constructed it would be performed and acts 1 to 5 and 7 would always run smoothly and acts 6 would always be a wee bit different because it wouldn't be written down it would always be somewhat unique in that construction, the story of the Bible is also divided into seven acts. Acts 1 to 5 and Acts 7 we have in the Word of God. And Act 6 unfolds before us day and daily as we live in Acts 6, as it were. And so the encouragement here this evening is that as we get to know Acts 1 to 5 and Act 7 from God's Word, that that will encourage us and help us as to how to live in act 6 so as we go let's begin by reminding ourselves who the characters are in this story of course God is the lead character Satan his opponent and God's people supposedly his followers but all too often are his opponents and the whole plot is tied together and resolved through redemption and reconciliation act one then Genesis begins with Act 1 and the account of the creation of the world and everything in it. Genesis 1.1 opens, in the beginning God created. Right at the beginning we're introduced to God, the God of time and eternity, who was and is and always shall be. We're not left to search for God in this story because he's right there in the opening sentences. He is before all things, the cause of all things, and the goal of all things. Just in passing, it's interesting to note there that we believe that that God is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And all three persons, the Bible tells us, are active in creation. In Genesis 1 verse 2, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. In verse 26... God says, let us make man in our own image. We note the plural. And in Colossians 1, Paul tells us that Christ is the firstborn of all creation, and by him all things were created. I deliberately stress that point that that all three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are there right from the beginning of the story in Act 1, because they are active right throughout the rest of the story. And so God created man, male and female, in his own image. And at the end of the sixth day, he declared, when he looked, at all was very good. All is perfect, and this is shaping up to be an impressive story. Yet as we move into Act 2 in Genesis uh, chapter 3, we see that human beings made by God turn away from God and fall into sin. Adam and Eve help themselves to the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They rebel against God in their attempt to seek independence from their creator. And the significance of that is known by all humanity ever since. that is a turning point because the whole of the rest of the story is how is this mess going to be sorted out? How is the relationship that is broken in Eden going to be restored? In Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 a seed or descendant is promised. And the big question throughout Genesis and throughout the rest of the Old Testament certainly is who is that seed going to be? As we move through the next chapters in Genesis we see the effects of sin working out as Cain kills Abel as God sends judgment in a flood and provides a means of rescue for one righteous man and his family. And then even Noah, after his deliverance, falls into sin. None of these people are clearly fit to be the rescuer. They're sinful, they're flawed, and they're messed up just like everybody else. As we move into Act 3, the story of Israel. There's a number of ways that we use the word Israel that could refer to a person, a place, or a people. But this evening I'm going to refer to Israel exclusively as the name given to God's chosen people. The story of Israel begins with introduction to a family. At the end of Genesis 11 we meet Abram. God comes to Abram and makes him a promise. Promising to make him into a great nation and to give him land. At this time his wife Sarah is barren. The land that is promised is occupied by the Canaanites. And yet despite all of that, Abraham trusts God to work out his purposes. It's clear even in the first dozen or so chapters of this story that trusting this God will involve walking by faith and not by sight. For in the light of Abraham's current circumstances, God's promise to him seems ridiculous. But it soon becomes clear. That even Abram and those others that put their trust in God still get it wrong. For they will lie. They will laugh at God. They will even take matters into their own hands as Abram did in involving Hagar and his family situation. Because even though that might have been culturally permissible. It showed a lack of trust in God to keep his promises in his own time. Clearly, even the best of human intentions are flawed. And that continues throughout the rest of the patriarchs as we read the story of the life of Isaac, of Jacob, of Esau, of Joseph, and so on. By the time we reach the end of Genesis, the family has grown. And we've reached the point of Joseph and his his family, uh, and his father's family going to Egypt. It is in Egypt that we begin to be introduced to the nation. The family has grown into a nation. Exodus 1 continues the story and describes that growth and the related oppression of the people of Israel and Egypt. And then enter on stage Moses, an Israelite by birth who is brought up in an Egyptian household, but who interestingly sides with his own people. And years later, years later as an outlawed uh, elderly person settled in Midian. He's the most unlikely person for God to choose to deliver his people. What a strange development. God calls this old man Moses. We see that in this story God works through the most extraordinary means, in unlikely circumstances and through unlikely people. And what an encouragement for us today when we feel inadequate incapable, pessimistic. That it's not about us, but it's about God and the God revealed to us in Scripture who because of his grace uses and transforms ordinary people with their flaws and their faults and their feelings. And that is the miracle of his grace. You know the development of the story from the call at Sinai through the plagues and the escape through the Red Sea. The wilderness wanderings until they reach the promised land. And in the midst of all of this, the children of Israel for 40 years are wandering around as a community in the wilderness. And of course, because they are in community, they have to have rules and regulations and instructions. And certain laws are prescribed. And here perhaps is the first major issue that that I know confuses me and is difficult to understand in, in putting this story together because there's so much law in those opening books uh, of the Bible. Traditionally, uh, the law has been divided into three categories, the moral law, the ceremonial law, and the civil law. The moral law is basically the Ten Commandments. That still binds us today, and whether society wants to admit it or not, it's basically the the foundation of, of all civilized society. The ceremonial law, on the other hand, were specific instructions for how the Old Testament church was to worship. Often the ceremonial law, for example, recorded in the book of Leviticus, uh, prefigured some aspect of Christ's work on dying on the cross. For example, in in Leviticus 16, we have the, the account of the Day of Atonement and the two goats and one being killed and one bearing away the sins of the people. A visual representation of what Christ would do in god's time moral law ceremonial law and thirdly civil law these were laws that governed the state of israel and so in numbers we have a whole mixture of narrative and and additional laws census lists and so on really confusing for us to read and yet their purpose was just part of israel's history as a community in the wilderness they were long remembered by the people of israel because they testified to God's continued faithfulness, despite their rebellion and their waywardness. Then we come to Deuteronomy. And that Deuteronomy is basically one long sermon. It takes us to the final weeks east of the Jordan before they enter the promised land. It's significant because in Deuteronomy, we have the account of how God has been faithful, being told for a new generation. Deuteronomy seeks to remind the people of God's uniqueness and his faithfulness so we've seen how a family develops into a nation but god also promised abram land where's that as they stand on the east of the jordan and and look into the promised land it's occupied by other people but the historical book of joshua describes how israel get the land the conquest is described and Once they get it, Joshua tells us how they divided it up. The division of land is a contentious issue in any generation, politically and even in families. Who gets what part of the inheritance when it's all being divided up? Some things never do change. And once they get the land and once they get it divided up and who's going to live in what part, they then face the big question of leadership in the land. Now we know that leadership in any new society is always a difficult uh, issue to grapple with. We've seen something of that in our own land with the complexities of devolved government in recent years. And yet that same issue of who is going to lead in this land is what the people have uh, to deal with. And you see how this is still the continuation of the same story. A people, a nation, a land. A blessing. The leadership in the land commences with the judges. The book of Judges has been described as Israel's wild West days. A judge was basically a military leader rather than a legal official and more or less would have sorted out local disputes among two or three different people. But in Judges we see a disturbing spiral of how the people enter this cycle of rebellion, repentance, rebellion, repentance and so on. This book shows that that God can't just overlook sin but that in his mercy he does forgive and give a second chance to all who come to him. The issue of leadership is one that the people of Israel struggled with from one generation to the next. Yes, they had the judges which was quite different to the, the lands round about them. And so somebody or a group of people thought that They'd like to be like everybody else. So they came up with the idea that they'd like to have a king, despite God's warning of the dangers of kingship in Deuteronomy seventeen. But they want a king and and God gives them a king. In first and second Samuel we see the transition from Samuel who was the last judge into Saul who was the first king and the rise and reign of David. It's interesting, for there in King David we have a paradox. The man after God's own heart, who when he gets in the driving seat, commits murder, adultery, and shirks his responsibilities. We see again in this story that left to our own devices, human nature is sinful. Time and time again we see that, and we see it confirmed today even by our own practice. So now they have got a king. All's not well, but They've got what they wanted. First and second king starts with the reign of Solomon. And after the death of Solomon we come to another transitional point. For the land is divided into two. The northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. This can be very confusing because all of a sudden on the pages of scripture we have two things going on at once. And if you're anything like me one thing at once is, is quite enough. So we have two stories and two different parts of the country, two sets of kings and two sets of prophets, and it all very quickly seems to be muddled up. But into this sequence of events speak the prophets. Most of the prophets address Judah, but some address Israel and some address other nations. We'll come back to the prophets later, but just to flag them up at this stage. In the separation of land, the rebellion and, rep- and repentance cycle continues. But where is the rescuer? The rescuer hasn't been found in an earthly king. But God has promised to send a rescuer. But the people continue to sin and to fall away. And so God sends judgment and they're taken out of the land. They're removed from the land. They're captured by enemy invaders and taken into exile. The northern kingdom of Israel is carried off to Assyria and the southern kingdom carried off to Babylon. Now we're all more familiar uh, from, from childhood days of the Babylon exile because of Daniel's come along with Nebuchadnezzar and all of that but both parts of the country were exiled to different places. Then in his grace God allows them or certainly some of the people to return to the land. Ezra and Nehemiah give the detail about that, about the rebuilding of Judah after the exile. The rebuilding of the temple and the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem are particularly mentioned. But when we come to life after the exile, it's particularly interesting to note that it's very different. It's very different politically and socially to what it was like before. And so the people face challenges. But it's interesting that many of the challenges might be on new terms, but At the heart they are the same issues. Social issues. Social issues faced by God's people down through the generations. To do with intermarriage. People marrying people who who, who didn't worship the one true and living God. Issues of national identity. Issues of the law and issues of worship. The people had to face these issues as they returned to the land. The book of Nehemiah brings to an end mainstream history of the people of israel so at nehemiah even though it's not at the end of the old testament historically that's about the end of the old testament uh, story in terms of years and the stage is set for the coming of the seed who of course is jesus i said into this context speak the prophets often people think that the role of the prophets was to foretell the future in fact, less than 5% of Old Testament prophecy describes the New Covenant, and less than 1% speaks about the end of the world. Rather than foretelling, the job of the Old Testament prophet is best described as this as they declare God's perspective, as they expose sin and rebellion and point the people back to God. The prophetic tradition in Israel had dated all the way back to Moses, through Samuel, through to the... The books that we call the Prophets, which were written uh, between the fifth and eighth centuries BC, like I said, most of the Prophets address Judah, some Israel, and Obadiah and Nahum actually address other nations. But the Prophets, sorry, the Prophets provide God's perspective on the old unfolding drama. Perhaps the Prophets are a bit like the director's comments on a DVD, if that's not too crude an analogy. But as we read the prophets and get the idea that they are speaking into the rest of the story, perhaps there's three questions that I find helpful when it comes to reading the prophets. Who do they address? Are they speaking to Israel, to Judah, or to one of the pagan nations around? What time period do they speak into? Are they speaking before, during, or after the people were taken out of the land? And what form do they take? Are they poetry? Do they use metaphor? What what are we reading? I think, especially when thinking about the prophets, we see the need to have grasped the overall picture of the story of the Bible. We need to have done that if we are to understand what God is saying through the prophet as we apply them to our lives today. We near the end of Act 3 and thus the Old Testament story. And you might have noted that we've said nothing of one whole group of, of books in the Old Testament. Literature known as the writings or or the wisdom books, books like Job, uh, like Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Songs Songs of Songs and Lamentations. Time's going on, but I found one sentence that summarizes how these books fit into the story. Gordon Fee says, Here in a variety of forms, you find inspired human responses to the words and deeds of God ...that are recorded in the Law and the Prophets. I think that's really helpful. Here God has inspired human responses... ...to everything else that is going on in this story. In one sentence, that's a great summary of how these books fit in. They show how people are responding... ...in the midst of this unfolding story. Perhaps they're like a spotlight at the left of the stage. These these books remind us of the need for a response... And indeed, these books help us in our response to God's continued love and faithfulness. The story of the Bible, and particularly the Old Testament, has been summarized as land, leadership, and law. I think we need to add a fourth, and that is love. Land, leadership, law, and love. For it is God's steadfast love that That means he sticks with his people, come what may, through the good times and the bad. I think God's steadfast love is the glue that holds this story together. Because without it, this really is a story of disobedience, of chaos, and of judgment. God's steadfast love. God's steadfast love that steps onto the stage in a very particular way in Act 4, the life and ministry of jesus obviously the scene is narrated in the gospels but have you ever thought about how strange a beginning matthew 1 is to the new testament if i'd been writing or putting together the new testament i think i would have looked for something different a long list of names and yet in his grace god has put that there because it's like a flag at the beginning of matthew and the beginning of the new testament it tells us this isn't a new story This is the continuation of a very old story. The promised seed has now arrived. The seed wasn't found in kings or prophets or any other person of natural descent. But God himself had to step down into human history to solve the problem of human sin. Jesus, fully God and fully man, left all the glory of heaven to come to earth to die for sinners. Not simply a spokesperson or a representative from God, but God himself. The name Christ is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew Messiah, which means anointed one. And that's helpful because in the Old Testament, three groups of people were anointed to carry out tasks for God. Prophets were anointed, priests were anointed, and kings were anointed. And Jesus fulfills all three offices. As prophet, he applied God's law to the contemporary situation, as well as making some predictions about the future. As priest, he offered himself as a sacrifice for sin and continues to mediate between God and sinful people and continues to intercede for us. And as king, he rules over his spiritual kingdom, built fundamentally in the hearts and lives of those who put their trust in him. Do you see how Jesus fulfills the expectations of Israel? He fulfills the role of prophet, priest and king. The picture is becoming clearer. The gospel writers make it clear that we can't really understand Jesus without seeing how he fits into and fulfills the hopes and expectations of the Old Testament story. Despite all the waywardness, rebellion and sin of his people God has kept his promise and he steps down into human history to provide that way of salvation and if we didn't know the story we might think that it might end there but of course it doesn't act five brings us to the early church in the acts of the apostles the story continues after Jesus ascension the spirit is poured out And for Luke, the coming of the Spirit marks the beginning of a new age. We've already seen that the Holy Spirit has been active right throughout the story, right from creation, in the prophets. But the prophets predicted that in a very special way, in the last days, God would pour out his Spirit. The resurrected ascended Jesus pours out the Spirit to fill and empower and to guide his church. In Acts, Luke stresses the theme of promise and fulfillment. The continuity between the Old Old Testament and the New. Whilst at the same time throwing the story open to the Gentiles. To the people who weren't Jews. The story develops throughout Acts and throughout uh, the rest of the New Testament. It's not a new story. It's the continuation of an old one. And the church spreads geographically and grows numerically. And yet that growth is not without its problems. Because we have division false teaching, competitiveness. And so the New Testament letters are are written to try and deal with specific situations in the churches. Do you see it again? The Word of God is grounded in the context of real people and real lives with real struggles. Whether it's the Old Testament people in a wilderness or the church in a secular city of the first century or the 21st, God is interested in people. This story tells us that God is a personal God. Then in Acts 7, we have the end of the drama, or perhaps really just the beginning. We've had glimpses of the end of the drama along the way, Jesus teaching on the Last Judgment, or perhaps the, the, the writing in Paul in 1 Thessalonians on the end times. But in Revelation, in a very particular way, we have an unveiling or a pulling back the curtain. And in Revelation, we are reminded that God is in absolute control of history. That although God's people suffer in the present, their salvation is sure. What a comfort to be told by God himself that there is a throne. And to be assured that the seat is not empty, for the Lamb is on the throne. And one day he will put all things right. I think this is one of those occasions Where it is great to know the ending. Okay, it might seem like reading the last chapter of a novel before you start, but on the other hand, it helps us to keep perspective, to live in the reality of the here and now, to live with hardship and difficulties of the present, but to keep an eye on the eternal, trusting in the God who is in control, the Lamb who is on the throne, as we live for Him here and now. And so we come to Act 6, missing, or perhaps as I prefer to call it, unfolding, as it unfolds in our lives day and daily. Like I said at the beginning, according to the metaphor, we live in the midst of Act 6. We are assured that our ability to live faithfully in this time must be rooted in our thorough understanding of Acts 1 to 5 and 7. That God, by his grace and with his wisdom, will guide us and grant us his spirit to help us live faithful, obedient lives in this world. And for that, we must know God and know his word if we are to follow his commands. Seven acts of the drama. We have creation, the fall. The story of Israel involving land, law, leadership and love. The life and ministry of Jesus. The early church. All leading to the end of the drama. God calls us into relationship with himself through Jesus. We don't need to just know about him. We must know him. Not just facts and figures. But we need to see the big picture of how he is at work and what he has done. Roger Crooks, who's the minister up the road in Beaver, has written a book called The Good Book Guide, exploring the main themes of the Bible. It's a great little book. I've drawn on some of his principles this evening, but in closing, I want to draw on what he calls the big idea. The big idea that will help us live in Acts 6, live here and now. Roger says that the unifying theme that connects all of the Bible, all of its separate parts, is known as the covenant of grace. That God in his love reaches out to undeserving sinners. When we see this as the Bible's big idea, it helps us understand more of what it means to live in relationship with God. For We've seen in this story that God doesn't behave irrationally or unpredictably. His ways do not change. He is faithful. And the promised seed that was promised in Genesis 3 in the fullness of time, came and died for sinners. This is a God revealed in Scripture who does not let go. He sticks with his people, come what may. What an encouragement that is. What a God revealed to us in Scripture. His Word tells us what we are by nature, shows us how our standing before a holy God can be transformed through faith in Jesus. Jesus. And living in the light of that is surely something wonderful. As we enjoy the Bible and, and get a refreshed understanding of God's great plan and purpose for his people, let's be ready to step out and live for him wherever he calls us to be this week. Let's pray.